and welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and this is episode 40. How you been? Hope you've been well? You good? I'm well, I'm good myself. I've just got back from Berlin in Germany. I'm just going to tell you it's in Germany. I don't know if you know if Berlin's in Germany. Who am I to judge? Uh, So we were in Berlin uh, where we conducted two interviews for your audio pleasure. Both of these interviews went really well. And I'm not just saying this, but I really, really can't wait for you to hear them. Because as you're listening to some interviews, you're you're hearing it and you're listening to it. And your vibe is well. And you've got that chemistry with the person you're interviewing. And you're just thinking, fuck, this is a good interview. And for both of my interviews, that's the feeling that I got. So those interviews will be coming out in the next couple of weeks or months. But yeah, Berlin, wow, what a city. If you've never been, please go. It is such a cool place. Uh, it's chilled out. The beer's cheap. For, for a capital city, it's pretty cheap. The music's good. The bars were playing punk music when we walked in, which is very rare nowadays in London. Uh, it was just a great time to be had. Uh, sadly, I was only there for two days, and I will 100% be going back to Berlin sometime soon. But Punks and Pubs went to Berlin just for you. It wasn't on a work thing. I wasn't really going there on a holiday. I wasn't planning it this year. I just happened to manage to book two interviews that I really wanted to bring you. So we hopped on a plane, went to Berlin, stayed in a hostel. And if you uh, follow the Punks and Pubs on social media, you would have seen that we were posting things about the time that we were there. So yeah. We went, I paid for it out of my own pocket. I wanted to bring you some great audio. And then once we booked it, we got invited to Punk Rock Holiday in Slovenia. But because I paid for Berlin out of my own pocket, I am now broke. And I'm struggling to pay for punks and pubs to go to Punk Rock Holiday in Slovenia. I've now been doing this podcast for about a year and a half and I've never asked for you to contribute to anything because I truly believe that all content should be free, not just this podcast, all content that is there to entertain, educate, for you to enjoy. But I can't continue to fund big projects like Germany or coming soon Punk Rock Slovenia on my own. I've, I've gone and set up a GoFundMe webpage where I'm asking you to go and donate a few dollars, pounds or euros or whatever you use to grab a beer or coffee and help punks in pubs get to Tomlin, Slovenia. So I can bring you some great interviews like we did in Berlin at Punk Rock Holiday. You can donate by clicking the link in this episode description on your phone or you can go on our social media sites where you'll see that I've posted up some videos asking for you guys to donate. We're not flying because flights are around £1,000. So what we're going to do is we're going to drive. We'll be driving the near 2,000 miles round trip from the UK uh, across on a ferry when we get into france from france we're driving through germany through austria until we get to slovenia uh, and we're looking to raise some money to pay for the petrol the ferry crossing a place to sleep on the journey because the, the drive itself is 18 hours and do that in one stint it's just not safe so we're going to stay somewhere one night and stay somewhere on the return journey so we need a little bit of money to help us fund all this i understand that money is tight for a lot of people so if you can't donate don't fucking worry about it but if you can if you can if you're in a position where you can throw a bit of money our way please do we will greatly appreciate uh, you guys doing that again you can donate on the gofundme punks and pubs webpage, uh, which is a link on instagram there's a link on twitter there's a link in the bio of this of this episode just click on it and donate as little as much as you can if you don't like the idea though of donating money and getting nothing in return 
fair enough. Then go buy a Punks and Pubs t-shirt. They're £15. Go to Etsy. On the search menu, put in Punks and Pubs or again, click the link on this episode and go and get yourself a t-shirt. All that money from the t-shirts is going into this project that I'm trying to do for you guys to bring you bigger and better guests. So any support, again, any support you can give, please do. Uh, And I am going to shut up now about that because we've got a great episode. Episode 40 sees me sit down with a pint in the Royal George Pub in Soho with Richard Copcut. There may be some of you who might be going, who the fuck is Richard Copcut? And why am I listening to an episode about him? Well, let me explain to you, okay? Richard Copcut is a man who, uh, back in episode 30, was referenced by Jeff Haunton, who is the owner of The 100 Club. Go back, listen to that episode. It's a great interview. You'll really enjoy it. Anyway, so Jeff held Richard as one of the people who contributed to save The 100 Club. So after my chat with Jeff, I did a little digging. I found a contact for Richard, and I asked if he would be up having a chat. To my surprise, he said yeah. And during my interview, you will find out why I was surprised that he actually did say yes. So what can I tell you about this episode? Well, I can tell you from the off. If you like 80s UK punk, and or if you enjoy fashion, or you enjoy the uh, the conversations of the backgrounds of like major fashion brands, you're going to really enjoy this episode. And I'm not saying this because this is the episode... Whereabouts, it's the newest episode, like people talk about their favorite record being their new record. I legitimately believe this is one of the best interviews that I've done. I just enjoyed it so much. And the reason I enjoyed it was because I was coming at it from the same angle that you will be probably listening to it. I knew very little about Richard when I met him. The only things I knew about Richard was that he helped save the 100 Club. He did that because he was the GM of a huge brand, Converse Trainers. And from what Jeff was telling me, he loves punk music. So I wanted to sit down and I had a chat with him. And it was just really an interesting chat because with a lot of the bands that we uh, we interviewed, some of the bigger artists, let's say, bunny ears, quotation marks, some of the bigger artists, when you're doing research, they've already done hundreds of interviews. So you already kind of know the answer that you might get to your question. Well, Richard is just not on the internet. He's probably done about two interviews that I found and he's not on social media. So I'm finding out the information uh, about Richard, like the way that you will be listening to this interview. So I just found the whole experience of this really fun. And I think from it, we get a great interview. So what kind of little nuggets do you hear then in this podcast? So you will hear Richard talk about how he ran away from home at the age of 15 because Richard's old man wouldn't let him go to see a discharge show. And this led to him experiencing squatter punk life for the first time, a life that he will go and end up living at the age of 18 in London as the drummer of the 80s punk act Soldiers of Destruction. It was while playing with this band, supporting the English Dogs, they actually got banned from the 100 Club, a club that he would go on to save 20 years later. Richard relives the running battles that he would have as a punk with uh, local skinheads throughout the 80s and how watching the UK Serbs changed his life forever. Richard will also explain how a young punk who was getting into fights and living in squats in North London, would go on to become the GM for a global powerhouse brand like Converse. And by doing so, pushing the brand to embrace its punk ideology by working with bands such as the Ramones, the Sex Pistols and Trash Talk. But ultimately, 
His punk beliefs made him reevaluate his time at the company once Nike sent in their own people to take over the Converse project. We, of course, talk about Richard's part he played in Saving the Hundred Club, and we end with Richard telling a beautiful story on how he ended up living his boyhood dream drumming for the UK subs. As always, stick around at the end of the podcast because your music plays out the show. This week's band bringing the show home are from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they're called The Filthy Lowdown, a great band, so stick around for them. But before all that, there's this. People, I give to you episode 40 of Punks in Pubs with Richard Copcut. Enjoy. in the outskirts of Soho, just at, um, where the Astoria used to be in London, and now it's just a fucking horrible site of crossrail that is now being built. But in front of me is a man called Richard Copcut, who you may have heard me talk about in my episode 30 with Jeff Haunton, the owner of the 100 Club. And he's the man who's been accredited for saving the 100 Club. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you, do you have like a... Uh, yeah... Yeah, it was me, or is it like, <laughs> no, actually, uh, uh, I had to back away. I, yeah, I, it's not that I saved it with, uh, by raiding my own piggy bank. It was, <laughs> uh, but I was in a position through the work I was doing to get involved, and through, through that work, it enabled the club to stay open for a further six years and puts it on the footing that it is now. I'm no longer involved directly i'm i'm back being a punter but for <laughs> but for six years i was very heavily involved with jeff uh through my work that i was doing at the time so sorry we're we going to talk about the 100 club later and okay. uh, we'll we'll come to that but also so the company you're call, talking about is obviously converse yes uh footwear and um again a brand that is very synonymous with the punk scene uh, historically so yeah, so I reached out to you to have a chat and you very graciously said thank you because I was part of me was a bit worried that you, because you work for Converse, you were like, oh, fuck off. Like, I'm not touching this with a barge pole because I never know what might come out. It might affect me and it might affect the brand. So off from the off, thank you. That's okay. Uh, just for clarity, I don't work at Converse anymore. Oh, right, so, okay. Uh, so in that respect, everything's fair game. <laughs> we, we can slag it off as much as we like. No, we're not going to do that. Um, so when I interview people for the podcast, I like to try and research as much as I, much as I can. You are kind of like a bit of an enigma on, on the internet, which is very rare for anyone, no matter where you're from. Is that like something you've purposely gone about doing? Because I couldn't really find... Because we're going to talk about later. You're, you're very much um, really into your music and you've drummed for a few punk bands yeah but there's not a lot that comes out of you T- type in like your name and punk or your name or whatever yeah I, th- I think part of that was deliberate i deliberately tried to keep a very low profile online some of the work that i did at converse particularly when i was based in the united states meant 
if you like, my profile became uh, more broad than that. And then some of the stuff through the 100 Club, it became more broad. But I'm of an age where I'm probably not the most tech-savvy person in the world. So that (laughs) probably uh, means it's kept my profile low. And you're happy with that? I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. If someone needs to find me, they'll either find me through the 100 Club like you did or... uh, or probably at a UK sub show somewhere. So for me, I'm kind of going to be doing this with the listener. I'm going to be discovering stuff at the same time. Um, so let's start where all good things start. I mean, where did you grow up then? So where was home? So I grew up, uh, I was originally born in Devon. But then uh, with my, uh, my dad's work at the time, we moved from the West Country to the end of the Met Line. So I grew up just on the outskirts of London in a very sleepy conservative town called Rickmansworth which uh, in its own regard, definitely not a hotbed of punk, but <laughs> gave me access through, uh, through the Met line to get into London very easily. Yeah. Um, and so in that regard, it was a very useful kind of base to, be, to get access to going to see bands and getting hold of uh, records and stuff back in the days. So what age were you, were you when you moved from Devon? To, to London. So uh, I moved when I was three. Oh, okay, so, so most of the time, yeah, my sort of formative years were spent growing up in uh, Rickmansworth. And then on my 18th birthday, I left home and moved to Islington, sort of in this quest, I suppose, to become what I saw at the time as a sort of full-time punk rocker. That was kind of... I didn't have a... You know, I'm not massively well-educated in terms of qualifications and what have you. And my sole ambition at the time was just to come up to London and live a punk lifestyle full-time. So on my 18th birthday, that's what I did. And very fortunately, uh, got uh, um, taken under the wing of a guy called Morat, who was the singer of the Soldiers of Destruction, which was this band that we used to go and see in various places. And he, uh, he took me in under his wing. I didn't have anywhere to live. Uh, initially, uh, in, his, in the flat that he had uh, on Packington Square in Islington, and then through his network, uh, managed to get a place in a squat in uh, Highbury. <laughs> yeah. um, and so sort of entered into the scene that way. So why did you leave home? Was it like you, was your parents giving you shit for the way that you were trying yeah, to dress? My, I grew up before it sort of became fashionable. I was in a single parent family. My mother actually <laughs> died in a she died in a car crash so on good. the way up from Devon to Rickmansworth. So it was just me, my brother, and my old man because my uh, sister had also died in the crash. So my old man was very conservative, both with a small C and a capital C. And I think probably to keep some form of law and order in the house of two young boys and him holding down a full-time job, he sort of uh, kept things very straight and narrow. And I started getting into punk. It's sort of one of those epiphany moments. I can picture where I was the first time I got exposed to it and it captured my imagination at the age of 11. So I sort of had this seven-year itch I was waiting to scratch because trying to get my old man to agree to let me go to shows was a battle in itself he couldn't understand why I was wandering around in a pair of bondage trousers or a leather jacket or looking like a sort of poor man Sid Vicious with black spiky hair or whatever at the time and in his words it was always when you get to be 18 you can do whatever you like 
And I sort of had that message drummed into me for years. And so literally when I turned 18, I was like, okay, then I'm going to do what I like. And that, that was when the journey really began. So was your brother also into punk? Or no, he... not really, although I will credit my brother. He got me into a lot of bands that I think have stood the test of time that other, I think, sort of bands within the punk scene have given credit to. So stuff like Roxy Music... Uh, T-Rex, Dr. Feelgood, Ian Jury, all those sorts of bands. My brother was into that, so I still love all those bands now. Um, and I think that gave me a taste for that type of heavier rock kind of music. But then when I discovered the, the sort of attitude of punk, I suppose, and the spirit of punk, that almost became my music that made, made it different than my brother's. Hmm. So who was it then that introduced you to punk? Well, like, was it on the radio or was it... Yeah, so yeah. I, I can distinctly remember being 11 years old, stood on the school playing field one summer and I used to take this little orange transistor radio to school with me and just listen to music. So it would have been Radio 1 at the time. And I remember them playing Peaches by The Stranglers and incredibly, bearing in mind this would have been a... Tuesday lunchtime or whatever it was the original version of Peaches <laughs> unedited yeah. so here I am at 11 hearing people talking about uh, what a bummer or whatever and of course when you're 11 you can't believe that there are songs like this and so this kind of little light bulb went off in my head and all around that time I guess punk was getting a fair amount of coverage in newspapers and what have you and that sort of sparked my thirst um, I bought Peaches was my first single that I effectively bought. I was so gutted when I found out it actually came in a picture cover and I just got mine in a plain white sleeve. <laughs> All, this whole new world of picture covers and coloured vinyl and whatever I didn't know about at the time. And then from that, kind of got into, you know, in turn, The Pistols and The Clash and that sort of first wave, but still very young. So I wasn't going to shows then. Um, but that kind of sparked my interest in it. Strolling along, minding my own business. Well, there goes a girl and a half. She's got me going up and down. She's got me going up and down. Walking on the beaches, looking at the beaches. Did you have, like, friends who you, who you can go to and go you listen to this or was it very much on the island of one yeah really i have to say it really was an island of one and even when i went through secondary school so i started secondary school in uh i guess it was 78 something like that there were a couple of lads there uh, that used to come to shows with me uh, as we started going to shows in our sort of mid-teens but no one i think took it maybe as seriously as me and it's not to say I was like the A1 punk rocker or anything but I don't know what it just completely captured my imagination I love the music I love the style I love the attitude and for whatever reason it just bit me harder than it seemed to bite others at school so was it the rebellion then because like you were saying like your dad was very affirmative and this is the law and this is how you do it do you think if there was another music genre that kind of had that rebellion, so say if you were the age now and grime was out, do you think that you would have pulled towards that? Yeah, I, I guess it is. I think when I reflect on it, I guess I've always, or since that punk thing, I've liked protest music. So I'm a big fan of hip-hop and rap, which I saw at the time as protest music, but coming from a different angle. And it's not that I'm necessarily 
into grime, but I assume the kids that are into grime are singing about their situation and they're angry at the world with whatever's making them angry today. So I guess if I was 11, 12, 13 or whatever now, that, would, that might well be my music of choice. But I got the punk bug and it's stuck with me ever since. So you moved from your home to, a, to essentially a squat. Yes. How was that for like a culture jump of, oh yeah, yeah, I can go home and I can have a shower and like wash my shit, to all of a sudden being surrounded by a load of other punks <laughs> whose hygiene, I'm going to guess, was on top of their list. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, well I'd had a sort of introduction to it. Um, when I was about 15 or 16, we came up to see uh, Discharge at the 100 Club and I'd actually run away from home at the time because this was yet another gig that my old man wasn't going to let me go to so I guess the dam broke and I said right stuff it I'm going to run away from home so I came up with a sleeping bag and uh, we went to see Discharge at the 100 Club and then again meeting Mo Rat because we knew him through the soldiers he said where are you staying tonight because he saw that we had sleeping bags so I said we don't have anywhere to stay so he said well I can get you in a squat in Petherton Road and again maybe for people that don't know if you go to these places now these are all in Highbury so Petherton Road, Beresford Road, Northampton Park these are all incredibly uh, expensive houses now yeah. but back then which would have been 81, 82 um, these places were derelict you know incredibly nobody wanted to live there beautiful old Victorian houses so we stayed in Petherton Road and um, yeah that was kind of like an introduction to squatting I mean we slept on a floor with God knows how many other uh, scruffy punks and whatever. Got up in the morning and we just came down to the West End, me and this lad I was with. Uh, ended up getting arrested that day. So my old man had to come and get me out of West End Central Police Station. So I managed to run away for about uh, 48 hours before getting arrested <laughs> and, uh, and carted back home. But it kind of, it had given me an insight into how it was possible to live away from your folks. And then, uh, yeah, I got into this place in Northampton Park, uh, which initially was a squat and then became a housing co-op. And there, there were about six of us living there. Uh, and we had our you know, fair quota of scrapes and what have you. But it wasn't too bad, particularly when a housing co-op came along. Yeah, there was running water, there was electricity. There were, I remember at the time there was only one ring on a cooker to cook on. So it wasn't necessarily the greatest, healthiest eating that you've ever seen. But aside from that, it was just me excited to be living the dream. And while I was in living there, uh, the original drummer of the Soldiers either left the band or got kicked out, I don't know. And so through that as well, I ended up joining the Soldiers of Destruction and becoming their drummer. So again, this was for me on my little journey of becoming sort of fully immersed into the punk scene to leave home, sort of live the punk life and suddenly be drumming for a band that I used to go and see and dance to and I had them painted on my leather jacket, I had the t-shirt, I had the badge, etc. This was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, suddenly we were playing the Under Club and supporting the English Dogs or whatever. It was just like a dream come true. You said when you like, went to a Discharge show when you were like 15, 16, what was your first show? And do you remember, so you can take a sip of beer if you want, I'll, I'll string out this question. <laughs> so do you remember like your first show and like your experience of it? Because between like 81, 82, that was the area when the skinheads were really like kicking on and uh, yeah. like fights were kicking out in shows. And for me, when I was a 
when I went to my first punk show, it was nothing like that, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I, when I went to some hardcore, hardcore shows, it was a little bit more feisty, but I never experienced that kind of real frightening aspect of I, some shit is going to go down and someone might actually go to hospital. Yeah. Uh, well, so the first show I ever went to was November the 12th, 1980. Oh, wow, you know it. I do yeah. know it. Uh, at the Hemel Hempstead Pavilion, which... I mean, Hemel Hempstead is one of the ugliest towns in the country, and the good <laughs> news is the pavilion's been bulldozed, but it won't take away the fact that that's where I went to my first show. It was the UK subs. I was a massive subs fan from day one, and incredibly, this was a school night, so God knows why my old man let me go. I must have just hounded the life out of him. So I went with a lad from school, and... I remember standing right at the front of the stage. I didn't know what to expect at all. And uh, so I remember the subs came on and they launched straight into uh, emotional blackmail is what they came on with. And I can't even begin to tell you this. Whatever I say now will not do it justice. The sheer excitement I had with that moment. I'm sure I'm supposed to say when my kids were born... You know, it wasn't as exciting as that. Or when I got married to my missus, you know, it wasn't as exciting as that. But it's the closest thing I've ever had to a heart attack. I just could not believe the sheer power of it. And the subs were, you know, it was with Nicky Garrett as it was uh, playing guitar at the time. And Alvin and Steve as it was on the drums. And Charlie doing what Charlie does best. And it was just spectacular. And I think it really made me feel, going to my first show really made me feel like I was part of the scene because I've been waiting so many years to go. Mm. And the subs were so powerful and because I loved them so much, you know, really from buying the first album and whatever, that that was, yeah, that was the kind of moment when I thought, okay, I'm really in the scene now. Yeah. Obviously, right at the front. So behind you, it must have been like kicking. Chaos, yeah. Did you, how, how long was it until you were in there or was it like instant, like, I see that I'm in there? Yeah, to be fair, at that gig, there was no problems. But the more we started going to shows and certainly coming up to London, you would get a lot of trouble. Basically, every gig you went to, there would be trouble of mm. some description. I remember uh, in 81, there was a really great tour called the Apocalypse Now Tour, which was Discharge, Exploited, the Nowhere League, Antipasti and Cron Gen, all on one bill. And they played at the Lyceum. Every Sunday night, there used to be gigs at the Lyceum. And so we came up to buy tickets in advance, because obviously this is way before the days of the internet and whatever. And having bought the tickets, we walked back down the Strand, and we walked underneath this scaffolding where they were doing a shop-up. And we were laughing at the time, saying, I wonder who's going to be dumb enough to walk under this sort of alleyway after the show because if you do that you're obviously going to get into trouble anyway we came out of the show it was a fantastic show and of course we were all giddy we didn't know where we were headed we walked down the strand straight into this kind of alleyway of scaffolding (laughs) and it was like a scene from Tarzan we had all these skinheads were up above us on the scaffolding and they sort of swung down and I, I can even remember what they said they said hello boys so we were like okay this probably isn't going to start off very well and then they uh, used some more uh, earthy language and so there were boots flying and fists flying so I just remember running down the strand uh, literally running for our lives and then I would say between certainly in my experience between 81 and probably 84, 85 pretty much every show we went to regardless of venue 
uh, there would be trouble. I remember going to see uh, the band, the Verrucas. We went to see them up in Scunthorpe. And me and this lad, Plug, we uh, hitchhiked up there. We turned up, and I knew the Verrucas because I'd been doing a bit of roadieing for them. So they got us in on the guest list and whatever. We got into the venue, and God knows where it was in Scunthorpe, but this place, there must have been 150 people there, and we were basically the only two punks in the entire venue. <laughs> we thought, God, this could be the longest night ever. <laughs> so I go into the, into the little boys' room just to uh, do what you need to do. I turn around, and the toilet was absolutely full of skinheads. And they were like, hey, you know, you punk bastards and whatever. So we were like, okay, mate, you know, we don't want any trouble here. And as soon as we opened our mouths, we've got... I don't have a Cockney accent, but if you're, from, if you're a Scunthorpe skinhead, we would have sounded like Cockneys. So, they, of course, they couldn't believe their luck. Firstly, they didn't like punks, <laughs> and then they didn't like uh, Cockneys either. So I ended up getting a smack in the mouth. My front teeth are still chipped from where I got this smack in my mouth. So that was kind of life of, of being a punk rocker in the early 80s, was just there would always be... Yeah, some chaos somewhere. Yeah. The, the worst I think I ever saw was an all-dayer at the Rainbow, which the Angelic Upstarts uh, headlined. And the Rainbow, obviously, is no longer a, a music venue, but it's sort of like Brixton Academy size, I guess. And from the minute we turned up there to the minute we went home, it was like started at 2 o'clock, finished at 11 or whatever, it was just running battles, and the old Bill came in with police dogs, and, I mean, it was just absolute chaos. So... On the one hand, that was that sort of nervous excitement and always adds a little bit of an edge to the evening. And on the other hand, you think, oh, I really don't need to get clumped here because that will <laughs> definitely put a downer on the night. Just trying to watch a show, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Calm the fuck down. Exactly. Can you hear the sound of an Um, so how did you end up like taking up the drums then? Because I'm guessing if you had quite a strict father, the drums is probably the most fucking like no. <laughs> to the request of all musical, musical instruments. So yeah. how did that happen? Uh, so kind of like most people, I guess, I was in a little band um, with sort of schoolmates or mates that I knew in and around Rickmansworth, one of whom is a guy called Liam Watson, who I think he still owns um, a recording studio over in Hackney. It's where the White Stripes recorded Seven Nation Army oh, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's called Torag Studios. So I knew Liam when we were 15. He was into punk music. Uh, this lad Plug and a couple of other lads we knew so we gathered together a ragtag bunch of instruments and I'm not technically gifted enough to play the guitar and I wouldn't put my voice to the test so I think I just ended up on drums by default <laughs> I couldn't really play and then someone showed me how to play Never Again by Discharge which when I look back now it's a relatively simple drum beat but at the time you'd have thought I'd just found the cure for cancer or something I'm like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> so I remember drumming that and thinking oh this is incredible this is how, we, how Gary Maloney does it I actually met Gary Maloney a few years later and told him that story so he was sort of a huge inspiration to me at the time so yeah I, I sort of bought my own little drum kit was in 
couple of little local bands, if you like, that didn't play uh, shows as such, and then ended up, yeah, the first band I was in was The Soldiers. So transitioning then from the crowd to the back of the drums, how was that and how... I always ask this to people who play drums or like anyone who plays on stage. How can you explain the difference of like, the rush of playing in a band when the crowd's going wild to being in the crowd when the band's doing their thing? Like, what is the difference? <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know that there is, or at least I don't know that I have felt such a big difference. I don't know that when I was in The Soldiers, I don't know that people were going that wild. <laughs> although uh, We did used to have um, quite an enthusiastic following. I think that's probably the polite way of saying it. They were called the Highbury Hit Squad. <laughs> and, uh, sound nice, sound yeah. nice guys. And so they used to come and watch the soldiers, so that always used to get a bit of a thing going. But I think because I was into the music and into the scene, and it just felt like the band and the crowd were as one. There was no distance between anyone. You know, It's not like it was a well-paid gig, or it's not that you were so distanced from the audience. You just felt part of it and just get up and did your thing and then you got back off and, and invariably you would like the headline band so you would end up dancing to the headline band anyway regardless of the fact that 30 minutes before you'd been on stage. So when you were touring, when you were touring with the, uh, the Soldiers, how was that? Was it like everything you thought a, being in a punk band would be or was it like, what the fuck? This is nothing like what I wanted to be. <laughs> like, why the fuck am I sleeping on the floor? Where are all the women? What is going on? <laughs> well, a little known fact about the soldiers, I joined them sort of towards the end of their existence and they only ever played one show outside London, which was down on the Isle of Wight, which I'd also travelled down to see them down there. This is before I was in it. Uh, and then we sort of just played shows in London. So it wasn't to... Oh, I then ended up drumming for Hagar the Womb uh, and that was the first time I'd really sort of been on tour, as it were. And again, to me, it just felt like a big adventure. You know, you're jumping in a van, it's filled up with equipment, and you're travelling to a town that you probably didn't know and hadn't been to. You know, with Hagar, we went up as far as Newcastle and, you know, places everywhere in between. Uh, although I do remember my most sobering night, probably, of playing the drums. We played at the Mermaid in uh, Birmingham, and supported Antisect when Antisect were at their absolute peak. You know, the album had just come out. They were so good and so powerful. And I guess everybody has either seen or used the expression about when a band has been blown off stage. I cannot begin to tell you how far Antisect blew Hagar the Room <laughs> off stage. I'm not even sure I recovered properly. I think that might have been my final, uh, I'm done. My final gig. Yeah, I'm really. Done. They were so good. And by comparison, when the Hagar people were all lovely people, I can't say I was hugely into the music, but a couple of friends of mine were playing in the band and they said, we need a drummer, we're going to do a tour, will you come out and tour? So I said, all right, I'll do it. But then when you saw Antisect up close and personal like we did, we were like, oh, Jesus, these guys are on a completely different level. <laughs> so you, you spoke about playing a show with English Dogs. And the one thing I did find out online is supposedly you got banned for life from the 100 Club. I did. After that show. I did. What? Well, not just me. The band got banned. So what happened then? So the Highbury Hit Squad had turned up. And uh, ever anxious for a, an enthusiastic evening, I guess they had taken things too far. Knowing that group, it would have been 
either taking it too far with the security people at the 100 Club, which is a distinct possibility, because at the time there used to be a lot of trouble between bouncers and audience, uh, or maybe there was some other issue around some sort of criminal damage or you know some fight or whatever it was. So we didn't really know we'd been banned at the time. We, we played with the English Dogs, and then we had another gig lined up to support Broken Bones. And we got a letter through... Again, we didn't have a telephone in, in the squat, so everything was being done by mail. So we got a letter through from, uh, from Broken Bones because they'd agreed um, to let us support them. And we got the letter through saying, hey, you can't support us because you're banned from the Hundred Club. So we didn't know anything about it. So we were like, oh, okay, we didn't know about that. And it was sort of funny when I then, I realised we were going to talk about the Hundred Club, yep. but it was sort of funny when I did hook up with Jeff God, I don't know what it was, 30 years later or whatever, I did say to him, I did remind him that, actually, am I still banned or are we allowed <laughs> back in here now? So, but the good news was I think the ban had expired, so we well, were good to go. That's always a positive. <laughs> so how did a guy who was like, obsessed with punk, playing punk shows, getting barred from punk shows, end up becoming like the GM of one of the biggest brands in the world? Like, How did that even... So how did you go from a squat like to all of a sudden being involved in fashion and marketing like how how did they yeah it's a good question I'm not quite sure how I did it um well so while we were in the squat my then girlfriend who's now my wife uh she fell pregnant with our our daughter our first child so Islington Council God bless them they were obliged to give us a council flat so we got a council flat uh, just off City Road just down the road from Angel Tube and then my lad uh, was born as well. So we were living in a tower block. And we had slightly nutty neighbours. And even back then, I'm talking now about the middle to late 80s, Islington then wasn't like it is now. So there was a lot of... Uh, used to get a lot of hassle and stuff in and around Islington. And so we made a decision that we would move out of London. And that sort of horrible moment when you realise you've got to go and get a job. Because I'd been unemployed for five or six years by this stage yeah and so just that yeah i can even again i can picture it now that sort of sick feeling in your stomach when you realize you've got to go and get a job but because i had no work experience very limited qualifications um i thought god no one's going to give me a job but i ended up getting a job with the post office so i did that for a couple of years um ended up being sort of at the wrong end of an armed robbery when i was uh, at the post office and I thought, okay, this is nuts. There's no way I'm going to get shot for uh, a few pension books or whatever. This would have been nutty. I need to find something that's a bit safer than this. So I ended up, uh, this is in the late 80s, just getting a job selling stuff. And so I have ended up, I was selling paint for a period of time. I sold crisps for Walker's Crisps for a period of time. I then worked at Nike, uh, the sports company. I was a big football fan, so I wanted a, a job in sports. So I got a job at Nike. Uh, left Nike. And but, I mean, like, how did you go from selling crisps to going to Nike? Like, were you already like, in a position where you kind of worked your way up? Yeah, I, I guess uh, by the time I'd worked at Walker's Crisps for a period of time, I guess I could demonstrate a body of work that meant I wasn't a complete idiot. You know, I could turn up every day. I could string a sentence together. 
Um, and so I'd seen the job for Nike advertised and it was to sell their clothing, not their footwear. And ever since, as long as I can remember, I've really been into clothing and the look and I've always been very particular about what I would wear and whatever, which I'm sure will make some people laugh. But anyway, that's <laughs> been my gig. And so got the job with Nike and yeah, that, I was there for over a decade. And um, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting time. The, the company itself was, was sort of growing a lot. I got travel around the world. I got to live abroad a couple of times. But increasingly, the reason I left Nike was when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize the person that was looking back at me. I'd become slightly robotic. Mm. Um, and Nike is obviously a massively successful company. Um, but I wouldn't say they necessarily encourage a great amount of creative thinking. You sort of do it the Nike way or you won't fit in. And I felt that sort of cramped my style a little bit. So then I went to Levi's, which I have to say was just fantastic. It's an amazing company, amazing brand, amazingly talented people that I work with. I was blessed to work there for a few years. Um, and then sort of stumbled in via a very brief uh, time at Umbro because again I got lured back into football uh, I sort of ended up by default at Converse but Converse had been a brand to me that every time I saw a photograph of a band that I loved whether that was the Sex Pistols whether that was the UK subs whether it was you know latterly the Ramones whatever it was um, people were wearing Converse so I think as a brand that has always been in and around the scene you know, if you go back to the time when I was going to shows when I was a youngster, people either wore Dr. Martens or wore Converse. I mean, that yeah. was basically the two choices. So I think I'd always had an affinity to, to that brand and then flew out to Boston to have an interview, um, met the people there and was fortunate enough to work with a guy called Jeff Cottrell who he's not necessarily a punk in terms of his musical appreciation or his appearance, but his attitude is 100% punk. And so he said to me, hey, you should come and join us. You're going to get on famously here. So I ended up getting a job with Converse and then started in London, did some work in Amsterdam. And then they said, would I go over to Boston in the US? And I ended up being the head of Chuck Taylor, which is 90% of Converse's business, which was like my dream gig because we were doing collaborations at the time with stuff like the Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Ramones, Trash Talk. I got uh, Converse involved with punk rock bowling, stuff like that. So I was able to sort of use my professional experience and expertise, if there is any, um, but kind of apply it to the punk scene. So it kind of felt like a nice marriage. Hey, oh, let's go. One of the attractions of speaking to yourself, obviously, 
yourself being a great guy, but also like for me, Converse is a brand that, like you said, I grew up and I saw like the Ramones. The thing I think about the Ramones is the music, but also the fashion. I always saw them like in drain pipes and a pair of Converse. Same as the Clash, Sex Pistols. I mean, Kurt Cobain died in them for fuck's sake. Like they're. I'm wearing them. I'm sure, like a huge proportion of people listen to this, have either owned or have uh, or have a pair of Converse. So, for you to go and then work, work for that brand and then have the balls to go, I'm going to change this. Like there's a, the, the one again, another thing in the, on the internet is out there is that you were very much at the forefront of changing the design of the the, the chucks that haven't changed in over nearly a hundred years. Yeah, you went. I can make this better. Like, where, where was like, where did I come from? Where did you go? I can, I can do this. And like, uh, how much were you shitting your pants when they went out and gone? If this is done, like, if this goes bad, I am done. <laughs> the uh, the insight for, I wouldn't say I changed Converse. I would say I maybe amplified what they were doing, certainly through the punk scene because mm. it was obviously already involved in the punk scene. With the, we were challenged uh, again by Jeff to, uh, to say, how well do you know the people that wear Converse? We think we know them, but do you really know them? So it was an interesting challenge. So to get under the skin of the guy and the girl that wears Converse, we, uh, there was me, a guy called Ryan Case, who uh, worked on footwear at, at Converse, uh, and then a guy called Steve Clark, who worked on apparel. We went back out on the road with a band and toured with them for 10 days, 24 hours a day, so that we lived their life um, to sort of see what does today's Converse consumer need from their footwear and their clothing. And spending all day with them, traveling in the van, doing the show and then the after show, it gave us an insight that said there's sort of three parts to their day. The first part is travel. So they're sat in the back of a van. I remember driving from Inverness down to Manchester. So, I mean, it was a decent drive of whatever that is, six, seven hours. So the guys in the van, first and foremost, are looking for comfort in their footwear and their apparel. So, okay, we need to make stuff that's comfortable. Then when they're doing the show, there's a lot of leaping about and, you know, making sure there's grip on the stage or whatever. So they're looking for something that they can perform in. And then after the show, one of the things we learned, which, guess what? Boys in bands like to meet girls who like boys in bands. That seemed to be the general gist of most shows we went to. Um, but then also, you know, maybe these guys are shooting a video or maybe they're having a photo shoot or maybe they're going to an awards ceremony. So there's some element of style. So after the show, they want to look good because they're going to go and chat to other members of, uh, you know, members of the opposite sex. So our takeaway was about comfort, performance, and style. Okay, so take those three insights, go back to the Chuck Taylor sneaker. Can you make a sneaker that delivers comfort, performance, and style? And so that was sort of the genesis of what then became um, Chuck 2, which, yeah, there was an awful lot of sneakers sold when we launched that sneaker. I I mean, well over a million pairs were sold on launch of that sneaker. So it... I would, I would hazard a guess that's probably the most successful sneaker launch in the history of sneakers because generally people, when they make a new sneaker, they might make 
for something that's on general distribution, they might make 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, but they're not making a million pairs, which is what that Chuck 2 did. So it was a great uh, exercise to be involved in. I can't say we were nervous about it because um, I think we had a good insight into what the consumer wanted, and so we felt confident in the product. So when you're working for a company, I mean, it's going to be people listening to this who are possibly going to go, why the fuck are you talking to someone who's worked for Nike? They're like, they're, it's basically the anti-establishment against like punk. Like Punk is meant to be independent, DIY. Why are you talking to him? Have you had that kind of thrown in your face of if you go to a show and someone goes, oh, yeah, really getting on, and then they go, oh, where do you, what do you do for a job? And then you have to explain that you work for Converse. Like, have you had that? And like, how do you deal with that? Uh, I can't say I've had it a lot. Off the top of my head, I can't think of many instances. Most people, I think, because, you know, to your point, they'll either own a pair, they'll know the brand, or they'll be aware of the brand's involvement with whatever they're doing, putting on shows or whatever. Most people are probably interested about it. Most people will say, can I have a free pair? Um, so I can't say... Yeah, I just got them in the back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't say I necessarily got a lot of static about it, but I think it is a fair observation. I think when I worked at Levi's, I mean, for every picture you, you can show of someone at a show wearing Converse, Levi's can show you 10 pictures, because Levi's are just as established in the scene as Converse are, as Dr. Martens are. Um, the Nike thing, I think that's... As I said earlier, I, I stopped recognising who I was when I worked at Nike. I, I don't think I was a particularly good employee there in terms of some of my behaviour and my attitude. And I think I'd lost sight of a lot of my punk values. I tried to still keep my punk values even when I was working in a corporate environment. And of course, when you work in a corporate environment, sometimes they'll be diluted. I'm sure some people listening to this will say, that's a load of bollocks, you know... It's, it's very black and white for people. I understand that. Um, but I was, tr I was trying to find a home for myself uh, in a brand that shared the same values of me and then maybe you could steer that brand towards doing some good. If, if I look at what Converse was doing then when I worked there, I mean, I think they did a lot of good in the scene, whether it was the 100 Club thing, got involved in Rebellion, got involved in Punk Rock Bowling... We used to randomly get various bands. I remember Peter Testube phoning me up. Would we pay for them to fly out to the States because they didn't have enough money to get out to the States, so we paid for their flights and stuff like that. Just trying to do the right thing by bands that had always supported Converse. We didn't see it as this is an opportunity to make money out of these people. We'd already made our money out of these people because they were already wearing Converse. This was our opportunity to say thanks and we're going to give back. I will say the Converse, the way Converse is run today, it's definitely not about the scene anymore. You know, they wouldn't extend their deal with the 100 Club. They stopped doing punk rock bowling. And, of course, what happens is other brands think this is a great opportunity to get involved. So the good news for the scene, Dr. Martins are now doing punk rock bowling. Dr. Martins do uh, Rebellion up in Blackpool. Fred Perry jumped into the 100 Club. And Converse have gone down this route of sport and basketball and signing Miley Cyrus, whereas the Converse I knew was helping out the 100 Club and doing a collab with Trash Talk. So you almost couldn't get to 
two different ends of the spectrum. So I don't, I don't work at Converse anymore. I came to an agreement with Converse that meant I don't work there anymore. I think it's fair to say that their version of what Converse is and my version of what Converse should be are two completely different things. So it's probably better for them that I don't work there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Take it seriously, change the words around, try to make it look profound. The comedian is on stage, it's taken for a wage. The critics think he's great, but the laughter turns to hate. Okay, let's, let's talk about the 100 Club and, and how you end up coming to. I'm going to use quotes, saving them. Um, I mean, it's an elaborate way to get yourself back in through those doors, really. <laughs> so to go and save them and go, oh, I'm, I'm allowed to come now. So. How did you hear about it? Because from what I understand, the, the club literally was two weeks from closing and shutting down. What was the conversation for you at Converse? Yeah. Or was it just, I'm doing it. Like, I'm doing it. This, this used to be, I don't want to use the words Mecca, but this used to be like my stamping ground. I, uh, me- I think Mecca is accurate, right? The, it's the oldest rock and roll club in the world. Every Tuesday and Thursday night was punk night. And I, I and thousands of others cut their teeth in the punk scene at the 100 Club. And that, that ignores the fact that thousands of people cut their jazz teeth at the 100 Club or cut their reggae teeth at the 100 Club. Um, so it was September of 2010. I was going back home after work. I lived back down in the West Country. Uh, so I was on the train. I read the paper. There was a little piece in it that said the 100 Club's going out of business. I thought that's that's too bad because I obviously had a huge love of that club. I've seen so many bands there. Even ignoring the fact I was banned from there, I still love the club. It's a unique place to go and see a band. I couldn't tell you a venue where it's that intimate and you're that close, let, let alone the history of the club. So I phoned Jeff Cottrell again, who was in Boston, and I said, the world's oldest rock and roll club is about to close down. Let's not let what happened to CBGBs happen to the 100 Club. I think we should step in and help out and do the right thing. So Jeff knew of the club, um, but he didn't, he'd never been to the club. And he's from Florida, Jeff. So he said, yeah, dude, you should totally do that. <laughs> so I said, well... You don't even know how much it's going to cost us. Oh, dude, you should totally do it. It's a great idea. And I said, well, do you not need to like, visit the club? No, dude, if you tell me that it's the right thing to do, you should totally do it. So I said, well, and this is sort of, I laugh now when I say this. I said, is there a form to fill out or something? There must be something to prove a return on investment or this is the strategy. And he's like, no, dude, just totally do it. So I was like, God, this is unbelievable. And I'd literally only been in Converse about two or three months by this stage so I went to see Jeff and I went down those famous stairs went into the club and his office is tucked away in the far corner and he literally had his head in his hands at his desk and I sort of knocked on the door and I said are you Jeff and he sort of looked up at me with this sort of looked like he was going to kill me (laughs) he was like what do you it was sort of what do you want sort of look so I said hey I read in the paper that the club's in trouble 
he must have thought oh, he's another time waster he sort of used to say at the time there were a lot of vultures circling the club you know trying to pick whatever bones they could out of it and I assumed he thought I was another vulture so I introduced myself told him about my love of the club told him that I worked at Converse and just said what can we do to help so I think initially he was a bit sceptical about it obviously but then when we explained what we wanted to do he was uh, honest and open enough to show us his books uh, so we could see what the deficit was the difference between going under and at least breaking even and so the original deal which we signed for three years was we would bridge the gap between the loss and getting him back to break even um, which was a considerable sum I'm talking about hundreds of thousands I don't want to give away trade secrets but it's a considerable sum of money people will say well what was in it for us again it was partly trying to do the right thing in, in this city Converse wanted a presence in London we wanted to be authentic in music we knew this was a place that young people would go to and hang out and have a great night and so Converse could become part of that and then maybe the slightly more business reason behind it was we knew two years from then that the Olympics was coming to London. And so without actually having a specific plan other than in, in my own little bird brain, we thought, OK, we've got a pretty cool brand, you've got a pretty cool city, and you've got the world's oldest rock and roll club. If you can't connect those three dots and do something interesting when the Olympics are on, you want shooting. And so that's actually what happened in the end. What we did when the Olympics was on, if you were in and around London at the time, there was quite a lot of negativity about the fact certain lanes were going to be shut down for VIPs. The whole of the city was looking east. Ticket prices were really high and it felt very exclusive. So we did the complete reverse. We tried to steer everybody's attention to look west, back into the West End. Tickets weren't expensive, they were free and everyone was welcome not just an elite few and so we put on nine the original plan actually was to do a marathon of music so we were going to do a 24 hour music festival which I don't think we'd really figured out that too yeah. well but in the end we settled on a celebration of the club's past so we did nine nights of music and each night was a different genre that was um, kind of associated with the club so there was a, there was a reggae night there was a hip hop night Paul Weller played down there, Blur played down there, and I was able to curate the punk night. So, of course, that meant the UK subs were uh, <laughs> back on the list, which was a given. but I, I'm I, again searching for the very limited information I found about you. you your son is now in a band uh, he's been in a number of bands yeah and like are you living vicariously through him are you like 
I want you to do this because I never got to do it. No, I will say he's infinitely more talented than I am at music, <laughs> infinitely more talented than me. Um, and I think where I'd joined a band for a laugh and, uh, I don't know, whatever we used to get at the time, a crate of beer, he's approached it as in, I'm trying to make a living at this. Yeah. So, And he's... I sometimes think it's a failing in my parenting. He was obviously brought up on a steady diet of punk rock. And whilst he has an appreciation for punk rock, he sort of tended to lean towards more hardcore metal. So, you know, the likes of A Hate Breed, for example, uh, Chimera, that sort of type of band. So he was much more in a metal scene than a sort of straight-up punk scene. So he was in Rise to Remain, which was a sort of... Uh, British metal band so I mean he toured the world with them did amazing shows Uh, then he sort of fell out with them he was in a band called Axe Wound which was a kind of uh, yeah it's a quality (laughs) name he uh, was a kind of it was like a sort of um, not a celebrity band as such but they had Matt Tuck from Bullet For My Valentine was in it Liam from Cancer Bats was the singer my lad was on bass Makey on guitar and Jason Bold, uh, who's drummed for various people, including Killing Joke. So he was in that for a while. And then he set up his own band, which is called Zoax, Z-O-A-X, which I think he was at his most happy with. Again, did a lot of touring, both in the UK and abroad. That's sort of been on the back burner for a couple of years. And for the last couple of years, uh, he has just been making music and funnily enough, he's just come back from Ireland. He was in Ireland for 10 days in a recording studio. So he's, he's probably got a set worth of music to come out, um, which I'm guessing he will start gigging this year. So he's the real musician in the family, it has to be said. And I guess like all parents, you want your kids to do, do well at whatever it is they choose to do. So, And my kids... My, my lad's a musician, so he works his socks off and makes no money. And my daughter is a lawyer. She really, <laughs> wow, work, yeah. she really works her socks off, yeah. and she does get rewarded for what she does. So we've got sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. I, I will tell you a funny story. My lad got signed by EMI when he was at Rice to Remain. And he, he was only 18 at the time, so he, had like a, he came back with a contract from EMI to sign. He was like a dog with two tails because he's like, I'm going to get signed by EMI. This is unbelievable. So, of course, I tell him all about the pistols in EMI and it goes straight over his head. He's not interested in that at all. And my daughter, she's a litigation lawyer, but she's uh, also done a lot of contract law. So she reads through this contract and she says, only an idiot would sign this contract. It was so heavily weighted in favour of EMI. And, of course, my lad just immediately signed it <laughs> to EMI. And then uh, he probably lived to tell, regret that about four or five years later. But anyway. There you go, kids. Read the contract. <laughs> yeah, don't just exactly. sign it. Um, so we're going to wrap this up because we're coming to an hour. And also, you're actually going over to the 100 Club uh, to go and watch the subs um, soon. But when we were communicating, you told me to ask you about what happened a couple of days ago when well a couple of weeks ago where basically you ended up drumming for the subs I did end up drumming for the UK so subs. tell that story what happened so this this really was like my dream come true I, I'm a colossal subs fan and there's a few of us about the more I've travelled around following the subs you end up seeing you know some very familiar faces and uh, so last year alone 
I think I saw him about 20 odd times. I went out to America to follow the US tour, followed him around here and whatever. So I know the subs really well. They're always very kind to me and they look after me. And I've had a few credits on their albums, which again was like a dream come true for me. Anyway, I got a uh, phone call from them uh, and they said, Are you coming to the show tonight? So they were playing in Worcester. So I said, yeah, I probably am going to come along tonight. So they said, oh, that's good, because we can't find Jamie, the drummer. So I said, oh, okay. So they said, uh, we might want you to drum for us. So I thought, yeah, very good, you know, I'm, I'm sure. So I said, oh, maybe I should come along slightly earlier than normal, because uh, normally I'll get there sort of just before they go on. So then they said, yeah, that would be good, because you can go sit down with Alvin and Steve and go through the set. So I thought, okay, these guys are actually serious here. This is suddenly it got a bit serious. So anyway, I put the phone down, drove up to Worcester, assuming that by the time I got there, Jamie would appear. Anyway, still no one had heard from him. So then I'm upstairs with the subs, and they're saying to me, what songs do you know? So I said, well, I know them all, but whether I can play them all, that's a completely different story. So, and again, in a never-to-be-forgotten moment for me at least, I basically picked my own sub-set list and uh, still no sign of Jamie, so then went down and, and played the entire set for him, which I think we just about got away with it, I think. Um, I, yeah, and it was like a dream come true. It really was. So what happened to Jamie? Can you tell? Can you say? He had been... Uh, I saw Jamie on Wednesday, actually, at the Subhumans. I went to see his other band are called You, which people should check out. It's a really great band. Um, I saw Jamie, he had been at rehearsals, I assume with you, and then he'd gone out in Camden and he'd been arrested. I won't tell you what he was arrested for. It was nothing like weird. It was typical, if you know Jamie, you'll, you'll go, okay, that figures. But when you see Jamie, he should tell you, not me. So he'd been arrested, he'd been kept in for 24 hours, which is why he didn't make the show. Um, and then they let him out and he joined the tour again and... So I can say, you know, I drummed in the Soldiers of Destruction, I drummed for Hagar the Womb, and for one night only I drummed for the UK subs, which, that, that's it, I can die a happy man now. Well, let's end it there then. Um, <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. I wish you all the best in whatever you do, and uh, thanks. Thanks, Lee. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you to Richard for giving up his time to talk to me. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you did, then please go rate and review on iTunes. Right, that's it for me. Let me just take a quick moment to remind you, please give what you can to our Punks in Pubs GoFundMe page. Just click the link in this episode bio on your phone and give as much or as little as you can. Or go pick up a t-shirt as well, £15 via Etsy. All the money helps to contribute to this podcast getting bigger and better and doing more projects like the Berlin One or Punk Rock Holiday. Let's take this podcast home. Playing at the show is a band named The Filthy Lowdown. They're based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And this track is from their new album, El Accidente, an album that was produced by Joe Queer of The Queers, guest of episode 38, Go Back and Listen, and mixed and mastered by Ryan of The Atom Age, not a guest on this podcast. This track is called Mischief. 
and he's pretty fucking good. Right, we're gone. We're out of here. If you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick that motherfucker right back up. Until next time, bye-bye.